0: Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. I'm Danielle Rodeutjen. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books to art to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. my guest on this episode is esther freud since the publication of her celebrated debut hideous kinky in 1992 she's enjoyed a high-profile career as a novelist playwright and writer she's just published her latest book i couldn't love you more and she came on the podcast to talk about changing values across family generations hanging out with kate winslet and to share with me some of the objects she's collected over the years that she still holds dear Hi Esther,
1: welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure, thank you. Where are you today? Um, I'm sitting in my study. Uh, It overlooks a playground which for most of lockdown has been silent. And actually right now it's silent, maybe they're all in lessons. But it's feeling very peaceful just at the moment.
0: So we're here to talk about your latest book, I Couldn't Love You More. How are you feeling about it?
1: It's a strange period just before a book comes out because it's lived with you for so long. But then, in the last sort of six months, it's really done. There's nothing more. My involvement with it is sort of over. But then, of course, right now it starts up again with a with a real rush, and um, it's almost like having a secret that suddenly everybody knows. <laughs> and it's actually really it's really lovely when people start to read it, and you have the discussions of things that have meant so much to you, and you've held so kind of close, and. Um, yeah, it's 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 a bit like when you're first in love and you can't even bear to say the name of the person and suddenly <laughs> you're talking about these things and everything's open, but it also feels a bit unreal. And and this is my ninth book, but it doesn't actually make any difference. It feels just the same as my first.
0: Mm, and I suppose and it makes you feel a bit vulnerable, does it? Because you're sort of revealing that part of yourself that, like you said, was previously just
1: private to you. For some is not so much right now, but a few weeks ago, I felt very vulnerable. Um, I think just in the last few weeks, a few more people have read it and now I feel almost like cocooned in the sort of appreciation that they've shown. Mm. So I've forgotten about that, but I, it doesn't, it just takes one word of, oh, I didn't really understand. And then you're right back there. <laughs> <laughs> the book follows
0: um, the lives of three different women from the same family, a, a grandmother, uh, a mother and a daughter. And you've said in the past about how your stories come from a personal place. Um, The most obvious example is Hideous Kinky, your first book, which was published in 1992, about your trip around Morocco, the child with your mother and your sister, Bella. How does this book relate to you personally?
1: Well, I started out wanting to write about love, just as a subject. I I don't often have um, books that have a kind of theme Um, Usually, it's a story or a character or a place. Um, So, I started writing sort of scenes from different women's points of view, and I based it, I was just so interested in different generations and the cultural um, influences that women are faced with, and how it affects their relationships with the the men, usually, that they're in love with, and also how it affects the way they're able to um, devote themselves or not to their children. And so I started writing about this, and then I realized just to be just to make life easier, I was sort of using the generation of my grandmother and my mother and myself. After a while, <laughs> much as I was enjoying it, I realized I really did need a story. So the story grew out of that initial idea. And the story itself is um is really not my own story at all. I had to do a huge amount of research. It, it involves um, um you know, the incarceration of young Irish women in mother and baby homes. And also it has a big adoption theme which follows on from that. Um, but it came from a very personal place. And, um, and it's because my mother um, was, a, was a teenage mother. She was 18 uh, when she had my sister and 20 when she had me. And um, she had um, kept this news secret from her parents. Her parents were living in Ireland and were good Catholics and she'd been brought up in a convent and she was very fearful that they would disapprove of her. Um, That was really where I took my starting point, kind of what would have happened to her, but really what happened to so many girls? I I read the most extraordinary stories about girls who were living in London and found themselves sort of back in Ireland and um, facing... What no one really knew it was pretty much I think it was quite unknown what actually went on in these homes. When you
0: read the book itself and the character Rosaline who goes to give birth to her daughter in a convent, I mean it's so it really is, it really takes you there and it's very heartrending and disturbing. And and there has been quite a lot of stuff out, stories coming out recently in recent years, and even films made about the subject, um, on the topic, but it's I have been reading stuff about it, and it's interesting that all this stuff's come up. I mean, it's been really interesting and heartrending to research that side of it.
1: Well, it's 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 a very odd thing, but when you're very fixed on a subject, suddenly it's it's as if it's the only subject there is, and often that's um, completely subjective. But in this case, I've been working on this book since 2015, and as the years passed, more and more came out about it, as if it was just ready. And then, just in January, as I was beginning my publicity the report that had begun in 2015 about mother and baby homes in Ireland uh, was published. And so there was so much, and people who knew I'd been writing this book for years all got in touch with me saying, oh, how's it going? What's happened? I can't believe, you know, this story is, is out here right now. And the story has been coming out slowly, but with the publication of the report, I think people have been really woken up just to the sheer reality because women were asked to give their testimonies And until very recently, women were told to stay silent, really change their name, never discuss what had happened to them and never discuss what happened to them in the home. And they were also asked while in the home not to say anything personal about their lives, which, you know, was very difficult and also very isolating. And I I read a really moving testimony by a woman um, who said that when she left, she left her name that she'd had in the home behind. They were often in the homes for three years, a long period of life, especially when you're 16, often the girls were incredibly young. Um, They left their babies, or their babies were taken. Uh, They left the name they'd been, and they they almost felt as if they'd left a a separate side of themselves, and carried on in denial in a completely uh, sort of new life and years later, it, kept, it caught up with them often, and they sort of fell into despair and loss and grief. And often it's those women now who are in their fifties and sixties, seventies, who are who are really coming forward, just grieving with the pain of what they were subjected to.
0: And in the in the book, um, Rosaline creates. She, I, I I don't think I'm ruining any of the plot by saying this, but tell me if I am. But she knits a bonnet for her daughter, her unborn daughter, and yeah. sews the child's name
1: into the bonnet. I like the idea that I feel that she might just want to give just some little possible clue. Although at that point, she really is still in denial that this will ever happen. As a lot of the women were, they just couldn't really believe that there wouldn't be some way that they would be able to keep their children
0: yeah, I thought that came across really well. and and certainly with Rosaline and the other young women that she's with in the convent, they all there is that element of unreality or they, or they they hear the cries and they hear this of the other women giving birth, or they hear the stories about what's happened to the other women, but there is that element of it being slightly unreal or that it's not going to happen to them, or there's this hope that they'll be able to leave quite quickly if someone comes and pays the hundred pounds or wherever whatever it takes to get them out. Um, the idea of it being such a prison as well was is so um it's so claustrophobic.
1: Yes, idea, I do. You can't
0: get out when you want to get out.
1: Yes, I think, you know, girls to try and run away. But the police were very much on side and the, the guarder where they would bring them back. Um, also, girls, you know, they had the shame. They wouldn't know that they were safe to return to their families and they didn't have any money. So it was very hard for people to leave, really, and to leave to where um, I actually as I was writing the book, I found out through my research that um, the only way you could get out before you'd. Unless you served um, the three years when you worked like a slave to repay the nuns, Um, the only other way was if somebody came with £100 and I remember thinking, I looked up, that was about £2,000 equivalent now Um, and for most people obviously it's just incomprehensible and also who would you ask? But I didn't know who was going to come up with that money for the longest time, probably several years. And I just kept thinking, put it for my mind. I haven't got to that bit yet. And of course, it, it, people who don't write books always imagine you need to know everything. And I always say when I teach creative writing, just just keep going, just keep going. Somehow it's almost like going on the journey yourself. The mysteries will unfold themselves and reveal themselves. And, um, and I had a marvellous day where suddenly I thought, ah, of course I know, of
0: course. And and in this book, you know, what's interesting as well is that you're focusing on the women, you know, you used these, you said you used your family, women in your family as a starting point and you're focusing on the women. And I should say for the benefit of the listeners that you are descended from a line of, with your famous name and from a line of famous males, including your father, um, Lucian Freud and your great grandfather, Sigmund Freud. Um, Did you feel, do you feel sort of compelled to celebrate the women in in your family to sort of redress the balance?
1: Uh, That thought never came to me. Um, I guess in our generation, in my generation, the women are very powerful and doing wonderful things, so I never really feel a balance is there to be redressed. Um, So I didn't think that. Um, I just sort of immersed myself in the characters. Um, There was a point when I thought, God, the men in this book are all so horrible. And I started to laugh slightly. (laughs) because if there wasn't someone I could find, Um, but I just had to stay true to the way the story was. um, Yeah. There are not
0: any, even if some of the men in the book are nicer than others and they do nice things occasionally, on the whole, I felt like um, they they had got pretty short shrift, the men. Um, Yeah. Did you feel like it was an act of feminism? Um, You know, there is this trend in the culture at the moment for reclaiming stories that aren't about men, or white men in particular?
1: It's interesting. I thought about whether I was thinking about it because it has been so much in the, in the conversation. And I think that it's hard for us to disentangle what we're being influenced by all the time. So maybe I was feeling particularly kind of passionate about telling the different stories. I mean, I thought a lot about my grandmother's generation and how they really had to side with their husbands. And often they did lose family members, their daughters, particularly or, you know, maybe other relatives that they would have been close to because their husband disapproved of that behaviour. And I I was really thinking about that and thinking how glad I am that my generation really is free of that. You know, the whole idea of we need to side together. I've always really struggled with that. A united front. I mean, when I first had children, me and my my then husband, not that this is the reason why that relationship ended, but um, we we used to talk about putting on a united front and I just couldn't really take it on. I thought I either agree or don't agree, I, I can't do this. And I used to think maybe it's because I was brought up by a single mother and my mother and father never had to put on a united front. In fact, the great value of them was that they had different opinions and I could get what I needed from them as totally separate individuals. And so I was interested in that. And I wanted in a way, provide that for my children. You know, It's not that we were, either of us, very authoritarian, I have to say, but it came into my mind at the time. And then it, it, something I enjoyed thinking about later, about how culturally different generations have um, valued maybe their marriages or their children more. And I would say our generation is maybe slightly guilty of valuing our children beyond everything. And it's sort of the cult of babies. And um, I have, you know, sometimes I see younger friends or relatives and I think, well, you know what? Just pay your husband a bit of attention occasionally. You know, it's- It's gone it's, the other way. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's gone the other way. You can see the just obsession with yeah. the child not having a moment's unhappiness. Yeah. And, and it's actually, you can see, well, it's interesting. It's a generational thing. It, it must've been horrible for children to look to their mother and see a stony face when- yeah. Yeah. So do
0: you think it was your mother's generation then where that changed? Because, I mean, how do you feel like you're a different mother? I was going to ask, well, first of all, I wanted to talk about, about a bit about your mother and just because she's obviously, you know, she's such an interesting character in her own right, um, the book aside. Um, so maybe let's start there. And then I wanted to ask you about
1: how you feel like you're a different parent to how she was. Sure. Um, my mother was a very unusual person. And in a way, it's been absolutely kind of wonderful having these years to really focus and think about her as a character and then sort of run with it because obviously you know I've just based the facts and the dates on my mother and then really evolved it into a into a story um my mother died very unexpectedly and suddenly when she was 68 about nearly 10 years ago seems unbelievable it's 10 years so um it felt like a luxury to be thinking about her and really imagine i had often i'd always been very drawn into the idea and sympathetic to the idea of what it was like what it must have been like to to have children in such a at such a young age and also in such an isolated way because when i had my babies i had my mother and i had my sister and i had a husband and you know my god i was just so lucky um yeah my mother was a real warrior and she really wanted to have the children that she had I, I wondered, I did ask her, actually, long, many years later, you know, was she shocked? Was she appalled when she found that she was pregnant? And she said, no, no, I was so in love and I assumed I'd have a baby. So <laughs> in a way she was kind of wonderfully naive, but also she was very in love. And um, and so I think it, it came out of a very happy place.
0: And how do you feel then that you've approached motherhood differently to her? is there a difference or do you think about her a lot in the decisions you've made as a mother?
1: Well, I didn't have my children until I was in my early thirties when I began. And so I was just a whole nother human being, you know, when I had my, yes. I mean, when my mother was in her mid thirties, me and my sister were, were grown up, you know, we were leaving home. So it was just absolutely different and almost impossible to compare. And, um, I, I got a lot of inspiration from her bravery and from her attitude of, you know, take the children with you and, you know, keep them close and go on adventures with them. But you know you have to sort of look at your own different life and how, and have to, and, and to accommodate that, you know, I was in a very different situation in a, in a, in a different world, in a different setup. And my children often really didn't want to go anywhere. <laughs> I I, I struggled with it I was sort of wanting in a way to have a more traditional life and also sort of wanting to be in you know was inspired by her so I I, yeah I wasn't absolutely sure who to be that's that's for certain Mm. like everyone we muddled along
0: yeah so and as as you just mentioned it's 10 it will be 10 years this summer since she passed away and, and your father as well, because they passed away within weeks of each other. How has their death
1: changed you? Um. Hmm. Uh, it's such a strange experience, very shocking. And then, well, people say it takes a year or two for you to sort of come out of the sort of real intense grief. But I found after about three years, I. I came into quite a liberated place because I had admired them both so much. And I felt as if I was just making decisions just because I was making them rather than thinking, oh, that they'd be impressed or pleased or interested or, um, I'm missing them a lot just at the moment, actually. Yeah, sometimes it comes on you. I'm sure anyone who's lost a parent, it comes in waves. And, um, but it has had some liberating effect because I did used to balance up my decisions uh, in terms of what they would think, because I was very tuned into them.
0: So you grew up in
1: Sussex with your
0: with your mother and your sister, Bella. Yes. I kind of wanted to mention this mainly because I actually went to the same school that you did, um, Michael Hall School. It's amazing. Um, Ru- I know, the Rudolf Steiner I, School I, in I Sussex. I never meet anyone who went there. I mentioned it to my sister and she said oh yes um I um Mrs Jenny Wellman who was our French teacher she said I, I remember her saying something about Esther Freud being very badly behaved and there was a story about her being stuck in a dustbin <laughs> so I just thought I'd pass
1: that on because it's so my, sister was mentioned also my French teacher Jenny Wellman was she yeah and um I was never badly behaved or stuck in a dustbin <laughs> but I feel without wanting to Smear so, you know, my sister's reputation but she she it's more likely she was much more fiery and rebellious but maybe maybe I was and I just wiped that from my memory when you were
0: well so you were a, mod, a well-behaved and model model student then
1: I I um I was I was and I wasn't I actually in the last few years I was quite keen to sort of try and show that I had some spirit you know I think younger sisters sometimes suffer from that that my sister had been had rather a reputation as being fiery and rather sort of glamorous and I was sort of always well, a bit m- more quiet and then in the last few years I, I did try and sort of shake things up a bit so maybe maybe I maybe I succeeded more than I remember mm. <laughs> that's funny I, I wrote a novel called The Wild have you ever read that it's all set in the school for anyone listening Steiner has quite an amazing system of teaching you have the same teacher every day for about the first seven or eight years and um They tell you that you don't really get books. They tell you everything as if it's from, you know, from their own mouth, the stories are sort of born. And my teacher, Mr. Clark, who I absolutely adored, um, he told us, particularly loved telling us about the myths. So we didn't really do any history pretty much after the birth of Christ. Um, We just had ancient history. And I got so caught up in the Norse myths that I actually thought that the great battle that we were leading up to, Iraq and Iraq, was actually going to happen. I, I just, I was on hooks. Anyway, in the in the book, I kind of described this sort of completely absorbed, you know, the way that the child is absorbed into the world of stories. And um, it's not until you're about 13 that we were handed um, a copy of The Lord of the Flies. I just was astounded. It's not that I'd never seen a book, but not in school, which seems crazy, but it really did inspire my love of storytelling. I didn't learn to read and write till I was about 10. But because I was very good at handwork and very good at crochet knitting, I was considered to be sort of one of the top girls. You'd never have that. So I had a lot of confidence when I left, but knew, I I don't think, the the Second World War had pretty much never been mentioned. No sex education. I was, when I got to London and went to a sixth form college, I honestly closed my mouth and opened my ears and hardly said a word because I realized I was a complete imbecile. I knew nothing. So you were 16 when you left, you moved up to London, you decided you wanted to act and you began
0: to see more of your father at that time because that's where he was based. Yeah. And I know this is something you've spoken about a lot, but sitting nude for your father, it's not something that most people experience. I wondered what, share a bit with the listeners what that was like and the circumstances it happened. in. I know it was at a time when he was painting lots of nude ladies.
1: Well, I used to come up from Sussex and visit him regularly, especially in those last few years. My sister had already moved to London and I would always go to his studio. And there were, you know, a marvellous, huge room full of paintings. He would always show me what he was working on. And there was, at that time, mostly nude women, sometimes some of my half sisters. And um, then he said, oh, when you move to London, would you like to sit for me? Well, yes, I would absolutely love to. chance to spend time with him also he paid me to sit and um i didn't really know anyone in london so it was something to do in a few evenings a week and um so i just went into the studio and took my clothes off and said is this a good position and sort of sat on the bed thinking i'm going to be a really good model um i think maybe the strangely naive way that I had been brought up. I mean, you will identify with this. You know, we we never saw TV. I, I you know, I, in a way, we were like Amish people. So I didn't think sitting for taking your clothes off was strange. I I didn't really have any preconceptions of what was sort of acceptable and what was frowned upon. And um, no one said anything. Um, the painting took a year to do, sort of September to July, and it was done. And then. How talking. many
0: sittings was that then for over a year was it a regular weekly appointment twice, or was it just twice a week hmm. two evenings a week for, for nine months did he ever come to any of your parents meetings or anything or visit you at school <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> he did occasionally come to a, sort of a summer fair or something mm. it was quite, always quite nerve-wracking because he was just always you know different from everyone else and slightly rolling his eyes at the sort of candle dipping ceremonies and you know he didn't really understand why we were at the school didn't seem to teach us anything but he'd also been to an alternative school he'd been to Dartington where all he did was make things out of clay and ride horses and he um you know he wrote as he I think when he moved to this country from Germany as a sort of emigre refugee age 10 his writing was still very much um he things academically kind of came to a bit of a halt at that point and um he went in a more creative and alternative way so I felt in good company uh in that way we didn't go to a school where they asked whether she was married what religion we were um whether or not we were likely to pass the 11 plus she didn't want us to be judged she absolutely abhorred the way she'd been educated and the way education seemed to be that people were being checked tested well very much like now age four decided whether they were going to be in a top stream or a bottom stream very lucky for me because obviously i would not have passed my 11 plus and i'd have been the dunce but as it was i was rather celebrated for being good at crochet,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And the paintings of you by your father, so they were obviously, I think, you know, a lot of they're in private collections or they're dispersed around the world in various places. But do you still have, um, you know, physical objects that pertain to those portraits?
1: Do you have the sketches or? Um, well, he, he designed the cover for my first book, um, which is so beautiful. Um, it's beautiful, beautiful. Pencil sketch. I asked him to do something very colourful and using the colours of Morocco, but he did a very soft pencil sketch in grey. Um, he he drew a picture of a from a photograph of me, something he hardly ever does, hardly ever did. And um, so I have that, obviously, on my first hardbacks, of which I still have a few. That's very. And that
0: impressive. was a photo taken of you
1: while you were on your trip in Morocco. Is that right? Yes, and I think it's yeah. only one of maybe. Yes, possibly the only photograph I have from that time, and I have bunches, a kaftan, and um, and some wonderful beads around my throat. But it's the sort of bunches tied up with a ribbon, and the kaftan is a sort of nice mixture of East and West. Uh, yeah, it's a lo- wonderful photograph. Was he proud of you with that when that book came out? And did he did he read it? He was it? proud. Actually, he. I took him the manuscript and. Um, I actually used that photograph when I was writing it because the, I was five and my eyes are tilted up to the camera and I tried to imagine everything that that child, the narrator of the book, saw was at that angle. So everything I described was looking up, you know, at the sort of people swishing by and people selling things and carriages and motorbikes and camels or whatever it was. Um, yeah, I took in the manuscript and he was... He said, "Gosh, I'm so nervous," um, and he was nervous that it wouldn't be good. And, it, and then he was he was delighted by it and was happy that it when it was good. Yeah, when it was very good, and it was
0: very well. You know, it was really your your first novel. I mean, it must have been amazing to have such a kind of uh, critical so much critical acclaim and a lot of attention. Yes, and it, it was, was a bit, and it was made into a film um fairly soon after it was written i think was it 98 the film came out with starring kate winslet what was it like having none other than kate winslet interpret the
1: role uh, of your um, mother
0: must've been amazing
1: yeah it it was the whole thing was was quite a roller coaster because i had been working as an actress you know for some years and everything was quite a struggle even though i had been working you always felt the job was about to end and how was you going to get another job and and then suddenly to have, we we're so prepared for struggle, especially when we we're young. That it was strange to have success. It took me a while to adjust. I found it quite unnerving and felt quite sort of um, self-conscious. Um, but by the time the film came out, even though a lot happened in those years, those, those late twenties, early thirties, I, I was, I'd just had my second child. I was completely absorbed in, uh, you know, I'd written two or three more books by then. And by the time the film came out, I it was probably one of the busiest times of my life, sort of personally and professionally. And I it was mar- marvellous. But, yeah, it, it kind of was, happened in a big whirl. And um, it was a very strange experience seeing the film because obviously I'd lived this experience. I then spent a few years writing it. And then suddenly there it was in an hour and a half. It was, <laughs> it was almost, yeah, I remember coming out and, thinking I'd probably forgotten to breathe for the whole hour and a half.
0: <laughs> did um did you talk, did Kate Winslet speak to you when she was researching the role? Did she get in touch?
1: Yes, she came over to my house and chatted about she it. She was a big star by then because she'd just done Titanic, had she? It was I think yes, was, was interesting yeah. she was she made Titanic, but it hadn't come out. So she she was a very sort of just young actress. Um, obviously there was a huge excitement hovering, but no one really knew. So she came over and I remember her sort of wandering around. She wrote her name. I've still got it. She wrote her name into my address book with her number so that I could, you know, we could be in touch. And she said, Oh, I don't know what to do tonight. And I said, she's oh I might just walk over to the there's a nice pub on the other side of, you know, something road. And I said, oh yeah. And she said, God. And she was a bit at a loose end. And I remember thinking, oh, I suppose I should ask her to stay for supper. I just laugh about this. I was like, (laughs) I need to get on and get my kids to bed. Um but she was absolutely, as everyone really knows about her, just a really warm, wonderful, down-to-earth person. And she spent some time with my mother as well. And um, and my mother always wore these beautiful silver bangles that um, she bought in Morocco. And they're very, very worn, with sort of wonderful Arabic kind of designs on them. And Kate wore them in the film. And actually, I I... I'm not wearing it right now, but there's one left that's not, that's still survived. And I I always, I almost always wear it. So it's a lovely Ah. continuity of this worn, worn silver bangle. So this is your ninth book with, I Couldn't Love You More. Do you
0: think you'll write, continue writing novels beyond this? Or do you think that, I mean, what, you know, what about people who are saying that novels are dead and that people aren't reading that much anymore because there are so many other media formats
1: um Writing well, for our attention I know people are people always saying things like that um ever since I was first published when I first tried to get my my first novel Hideous Kinky published and I wrote to agents and some of them wrote back saying oh it's a very difficult time in publishing you know people etc um but the news is that during lockdown um book buying has gone up by a hundred million or something so mm. that may just sometimes it's just one book You know, it's a very strange thing with book buying. You know, that that in the 90s, everyone was reading, but they were all reading Captain Corelli's Mandolin. And now they're all buying books. But, you know, Um, people really, really love and cherish books. And I don't have any doubt that people always will. And people who sort of, even if people read books on Kindle or or on a screen, they're reading books. So I, I quite often listen to a book on audio which I love to do, although if it's a very literary book, I, I have to read it, I don't want to miss a word. It's, it's easy to drift off a bit on audio, but um, no, I, I I, don't think I'll stop writing. I'm writing some short stories at the moment. I'm not ready to write another novel. But do you I'm need into- a, a break to in between? Such a big journey. Mm-hmm. Um such a big journey, you know, you have the idea and you're full of enthusiasm, and then you sort of dip down into this, underworld and then you then you get stuck there for bloody ages Unless mm. you just hate it and you just want to you know you've you just you, you can't stop because you've written so much and you have to make it work and yeah you have to I have to get to a place of real optimism that that's not going to happen even though it happens every time before I start so I've been writing short stories at least I can read them all in one go and start <laughs> and finish them within a few months at least so I think I'll just continue with that and see what happens next Hmm. what about any
0: more any more what about another play i mean not that we're going to the theater at the moment obviously but you wrote stitches um a few years back which did really well yeah i love doing that
1: i'd love to write another play um yeah all these things are possible it's just Mm. an idea that you feel that i feel is something i can make my own yeah that's not sure which that is Mm. yet
0: and what about your life outside of writing? Um, I know you live so, between London and Suffolk. Yeah. How do you spend your days when you're not working?
1: Well, I try and work a long morning every day, not the weekends. But um, I like to do all the things I like doing in one day. So I try and sort of pack everything in, into especially the morning. Um, I like to... I like to be outside a lot and I like to swim and walk and um, whether I'm in London or Suffolk it doesn't make that much difference because I live near Hampstead so I can do those things and yeah my life during lockdown has been not so very different from <laughs> life normally apart from everything being it's a bit like life in the 70s in, in Sussex actually <laughs> We just never went anywhere or did anything you know one night we were having supper around the table for the 100th night in a row or something and I thought yes this is what we did to our whole childhood you know it was quite boring but no one minded it. in fact it was it was also really really nice so okay well just
0: before we finish I know um we already discussed this but this podcast has a sort of format which is you know the the whole idea was based on this um, on five carlos place the matches fashion townhouse in Mayfair where there's a cabinet we always ask the guests to imagine what objects they put into the cabinet that represent them or things that have inspired them, and before this podcast, we spoke about it, and I sort of thought it'd be nice to kind of think more about the ways that these pieces have been maybe woven into your life, either through the books you've written, or um, I don't know, somehow in that way. And I feel like we've spoken about some of these things already. Whether it's the bangles that your mum wore in the, in, you know, that Kate Winslet wore in the film, or you know, the lovely um, the, the bonnet that Rosaline made in "I Couldn't Love You More." But was there anything else that you would think that you would like to put into the imaginary cabinet before we finish that
1: represents you. Um, well, when I was in Morocco and had my fifth birthday, um, I was given a wooden box, a um, sort of sandalwood box that has beautiful engravings on and a green material lining. And I started to collect what I call treasures, and I still have it, and it has all sorts of mysterious things in there. I do describe it actually in Kate's story in "I Couldn't Love You More." I'd forgotten that, Um, she goes to look for a picture that she's drawn of her own mother in her imagination. And I imagine that maybe she had a box like this. And um, when my children were at school, I used to sometimes go into the classroom on the invitation of the teacher and talk about sort of story boxes. And I used to open the box and show them something that, um, I had a a little, one of the sweetest things was, my mother had a lovely boyfriend called Bilal and I describe him in hideous kinky and I had a pair of black trousers that I particularly loved and um they the knee was ripped and he embroidered me he took a piece of corduroy green corduroy and he embroidered on it uh, a bird and a flower and he sewed it onto my trousers and when my trousers became too small I unpicked it and put it into my box and I still have that and that's the objects like that helped me write more than anything else and I looked at that and I wove the whole character of Bilal around that little patch I thought who is this man who would do such a sweet and tender thing for a child and so um obviously now there were you know my my baby's first bracelets with then with the sort of you know baby Freud on it or um I've got all sorts of sweet notes from you know loved ones and I've got a, a little note from my daughter saying Dear Tooth Fairy, um, please leave the money. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry I was downstairs or something like that. Getting Um, to the
0: point. Get right to the point. Yeah. Yeah,
1: So maybe I would leave that. I feel that encapsulates an awful lot of who I am.
0: That's lovely. Right, well, Esther, thank you so much. And um, I did enjoy the book so much. I think it's wonderful and... um, best
1: of luck with the publication and all of it thank you it's lovely to chat to you and um, hopefully meet you one day in the real world Uh.
0: (laughs) that was an episode of the collector's house a Matches fashion podcast you can find more episodes and more about 5 Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man and the hashtag 5 Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.